In this lesson, we are going to consider the concept of proprietary estoppel. Now, this concept, specifically in the context of estoppel, has been championed by, as it then was, Lord Justice Denning quite heavily in many other areas of law as well, specifically in the UK. Uh, the basic premise in relation to this particular topic, in that sense, is uh, the derivation of estoppel in relation to property law. Uh, hence, proprietary estoppel. Now, the concept behind proprietary estoppel, just very briefly before we go into the topic proper, is to put an aggrieved party in a position that he or she was prior to whatever that happened. So, it's in order to bring about justice and to do the right thing. Specifically, in terms of proprietary estoppel, it's quite equitable in its approach and it tries to get the just outcome out of any situation. So having said that, let's get into the topic. We looked at proprietary estoppel very briefly in a previous topic as well, but just to recap. Firstly, in order for proprietary estoppel to take effect, the landowner must have expressly or impliedly given some sort of assurance to the aggrieved party. And the other, as in the aggrieved party, in expectant of that particular assurance, should have relied on it. Finally, there should be some sort of detriment that was suffered by the aggrieved party. If all three elements are subsistent, if all three elements are found in a particular situation, then an aggrieved party may have some sort of redress. Now, here we see three specific elements, but the old law, as per Wilmot and Barber, there was a strict set of five hurdles, as was expounded in the ratio in that case, to overcome. Today, however, proprietary estoppel is primarily based upon Taylor and Liverpool Victoria trustees, a case which is available in the case summaries and one which I urge you to have a look at to get a better understanding of how uh, the evolution of proprietary estoppel took place from the Wilmot and Barber situation to what it is today. Now, if we dissect the components of proprietary estoppel, the three primary components that we discussed earlier, which is a representation or an assurance provided, reliance upon it, and a detriment being suffered, let's have a look at each individual component in turn. Now, at the very outset, a representation or an assurance must be made to the aggrieved party. As such, this representation must fulfill a certain set of criterias as well. Firstly, it must relate to present or future interest in the land in question. It can be by continued pattern of conduct, however, as was held in Thorner and Major. This cannot be something by way of a will, unless, of course, the promise was very clear and relied upon. Have a look at Taylor and Dickens, as well as Gillett and Holt. Both cases, along with Thorner and Major, are available in your case summaries to have a quick look at and analysis of. A representation can also be made by way of silence. Now, if you've taken a look at the video lectures for commercial law, there is a similar case in relation to silence in Spiro and Linton. The next stage of proprietary estoppel is that the aggrieved party must have relied on it. Now, the claimant or the aggrieved party must have changed his position. And what I mean by this is, his circumstances should have changed due to this reliance, due to the representation made and the subsequent reliance he had upon it. 
this change in position can be either monetary, labor, or even a job loss. Have a look at Ray Basham along with Gillette and Halt to have a quick outline of what a change in position is, as well as a causal link being present between the representation and assurance of it or a reliance upon it. The detriment can be suffered by someone else as well. Now, this might seem counterintuitive, but the whole idea here is to encapsulate the ability for court to grant redress to an aggrieved party. So always remember that proprietary estoppel is very equitable in nature. It tries to conduct things in a very just manner in order to put the parties uh, into a position that they were before this whole incident took place. So remember that its ultimate outcome is justice, to make sure that the right thing is done, what is fair should be done. Now, a mere inconvenience is not considered as a complete reliance. For example, when we mentioned the change in position, we were talking about monetary loss or labor or even a job loss. So a mere inconvenience does not fall within that category as was held in Coombs and Smith. The defendant, the person who has apparently made the representation or the assurance, need not be aware of the Reliance Act either. Now, the mere representation being made as well as an assurance being given, let's say, is enough to bind this person to this particular issue. He need not know that the aggrieved party or the claimant has relied upon it. Have a look at Crab to have a better understanding of this particular uh, requirement for reliance. Finally, once a representation has been made and it has been established that the claimant or the aggrieved party has relied upon it, there must be some sort of detriment. The claimant must be unconscionably disadvantaged. Once again, the wording here displays how equitable in nature the approach proprietary estoppel takes. And also, the claimant must not be at fault either, in some way, shape or form. The whole premise or the concept of clean hands applies here. Now, the very nature of the rights under proprietary estoppel can be encapsulated in two different forms. Section 116 of the Land Registration Act of 2002, it can be registered and be acted on if the claimant suffers a detriment. It might even be a probable overriding interest if the claimant is in actual occupation of the land in question. Now, there are several remedies that are available to a claimant or an aggrieved party. You can have a grant of a legal estate in land, as was held in Dilvin and Llewellyn, a grant of rights to occupy, as in Inverse and Baker, rights of access or way, as was held in Crab, right to occupy under trust, Hussey and Palmer, and of course monetary compensation, as was held in Dodsworth and Dodsworth. All five cases that I just mentioned are available within the case summaries, something that I urge you to have a look at in order to get a better idea of the remedies which are applicable in relation to proprietary estoppel. Now that we've had a look at each individual section in relation to proprietary estoppel, let's quickly have a summary of it. One of the pivotal cases in relation to PE or proprietary estoppel is Taylor and Liverpool, something we looked at earlier and available in your case summaries. There are three main aspects in order to satisfy a proprietary estoppel in relation to a claimant. One is that there must be a representation made. Secondly, there must be some sort of reliance. 
And thirdly, the claimant must have suffered a detriment. In order to enforce uh, a particular proprietary principle claim, there is provision within Section 116 of the Land Registration Act of 2002, and it might be considered as an unregistered interest which overrides the register. In the next lesson, we will move on to one of the most important components in relation to property law, and one of the largest sections within the syllabus as well, which are leases.